Thank you, Mrs. Winnell. Appreciate that very much, wherever you are. Over there, yes. <clears throat> very nice, beautiful music. On a beautiful day, the Day of Atonement. Uh, we hope you all are having a wonderful afternoon. Uh, we have a special treat in our family. Uh, my sister Carla and her husband Phil Stiegel are visiting uh, from Tucson. He serves as a deacon over there, and we have a, a group in, in Tucson, Arizona. And it's good to have them. You know, not every day do you get the opportunity to lecture your older sister for over an hour. And there's nothing she can do about it. You know, it's, it's really kind of an exciting opportunity. <clears throat> oh, it is good to, good, good to have them. Uh, we're, we're glad to have family. It's always uh, nice to have them. They're passing through on the way to uh, Helen. Just wanted to make uh, one short addition to the announcements in your update in your bulletin. I think you see uh, the announcement about the uh, L4T winter camp. That's going to be held in uh, Luther Ridge, Asheville, North Carolina area, so just up the road. Uh, that's being planned for uh, right after our uh, winter activity here, uh, December 27th through the 30th. So anyone interested in that? Uh, looks like uh, a lot of fun. That's being worked on. <clears throat> well, it is exciting to once again be keeping the Hall Holy Days. And, of course, today, the Day of Atonement. All the Holy Days are a wonderful reminder of God's plan of salvation for mankind. And we rehearse this plan as we keep these days each year. Just by way of brief review, we know the Holy Day season begins in the spring with the Passover. And, of course, that represents the uh, sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins, who gave his life so that we might uh, be forgiven and we might be cleansed from sin. The Days of Unleavened Bread, then, which happen immediately after Passover, represent our walking with Christ, our living and growing through our lifetime are feeding on Him, are becoming unleavened as well. The Feast of Pentecost in early summer represents the first fruits, the early harvest, the giving of the Holy Spirit uh, to the church, and of course being trained, the church being trained to rule with Christ. A very exciting uh, holy day. In the fall, the Feast of Trumpets comes, which we kept, uh, just over a week ago, we know it represents Christ coming back in a time of war. We know that when we look at history, we look at prophecy, we know that that's not that far off. Uh, the day of the Lord, when he puts down all rebellion and prepares to rule over the earth. And then ahead of us, we have the Feast of Tabernacles, seven days picturing peace and prosperity and harmony, and finally the the whole uh, earth being released from the terrors of the pain and suffering of sin and uh, uh, of government problems and, and all the things that we see and that we're going to talk about during the Feast of Tabernacles. And, of course, that pictures a thousand years of God's reign, Christ's reign on earth. It's something we prepare for all year, and we're excited about it, and uh, we'll be attending there soon. For any of you... New, newcomers to the feast, uh, first-timers keeping the feast, uh, you are in for a real treat. 
It's an incredible experience. It's one of those things you had to be there uh, to really understand it. There's no other way to describe it. It's, it's a fantastic opportunity for seven days to keep the Feast of Tabernacles and to be picturing this, this time ahead of us. Then the last great day, of course, the eighth day, the really exciting time when we talk about and hear about the time when all humanity who has never had a chance at salvation will be raised and given their first genuine opportunity to know the truth. A tremendous, tremendous day that we're going to, to keep at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, billions of people who were made in the image of God, just like us, just like you and me, who most of the world thinks are lost forever, will be found, will be raised to physical life, and given access to God's Spirit. What a brilliant plan. What an incredible plan that God has put together. What a merciful plan. We heard about that in the, in the special music, about God being a God of mercy. And here we are who, for some reason, understand the truth. For some reason, God has called us in this room to understand through no great accomplishment of our own, through no great intellect of our own, but simply out of His mercy, out of His wisdom, He's given us this gift of opening our minds to the truth, and we are here to rehearse it. So we have a remarkable opportunity right, right now, today, to keep another of the Holy Days, the Day of Atonement. But what about this day? What about the fifth holy day that we, we skipped over. What does it represent? Well, we're going to talk about that today in the time we have. The purpose and meaning of the Day of Atonement for all humanity and also hopefully something that we can carry away on a personal level as well. Let's go ahead and start in uh, Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23 <clears throat> Leviticus chapter 23, we hear all, we see all of the holy days listed here. We're not going to go through all of them, but first of all, he says, verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. So first he talks about the weekly Sabbath. And then he begins to list all the other feasts. Drop down to verse 27. He says in verse 27, And also the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls. That is, it's a day of fasting. It's a day of going without food or water. And offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, and you shall do no work on the same day. For it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that day, same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So we find it is a rest day, it is a holy convocation, and it's a fast day. And so, of course, that's what, that's what we're doing. Verse 32, 
It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening you shall celebrate your Sabbath. So we even see uh, an example, an illustration of when the Sabbath begins and when it ends. Of course, it's evening uh, to evening. Let's go over to Leviticus chapter 16. We find a little bit um, more direct instruction about this day, about the Old Old Testament, Old Covenant um, process or ceremony, observance that was that they went through on this day. There's some powerful parallels to uh, New Testament concepts we're going to see. Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 1. He says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Interesting again how God's throne is not represented as the smackdown seat, you know, Uh, the condemnation seat, the punishment seat, but rather the mercy seat, isn't it? Isn't it interesting? How does God describe the seat, the throne, that, that you and I go to, have the opportunity to go through every day when we get on our knees and we pray to our Father? It's a mercy seat. For those who are are willing, those who want to know, those who want to obey Him, he, he gives mercy. Verse 3, Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. So there were specific things that Aaron was to do. He shall be girded with a linen sash. And with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on, and he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house. So there was an acknowledgement, first of all, that he was not perfect, that he was a human being, even though he was uh, operating in this representation of of the high priest, which was a type of Jesus Christ, but Aaron himself had to offer a sin offering for himself and for his family before he could take part in the, the rest of the occasion. Verse 7, Then he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat or for the Azazel. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat, or Azazel, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. Now, we, we understand this. We, we keep this every year. We go, go through this. But stop for a moment and think about one of the main parts of the Day of Atonement observance was two goats set side by side by Aaron before the Lord. And then lots are cast. 
uh, whether uh, sticks or, or, or a dice or a number of different ways. Uh, we might flip a coin today. You know, we might um, draw straws to determine something. Now, that would be by chance, but this was not chance. This was God choosing which goat would be sacrificed and which would be let go. You know, at the beginning of a football game today, uh, when they flip a coin, it's not God choosing who will get the ball first, right? No matter what Dallas Cowboys fans think, but I'm sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't resist that. <clears throat> no, in this case, the whole point was it was God making a decision. But the way they did it was casting lots with these two goats in front. Now, what did these two goats represent? Well, <clears throat> we understand many commentators get it confused. Uh, many people today uh, believe that both goats represented Jesus Christ. Uh, one represented the one that would be offered as a sin offering, represented him slain. And the other that was let go in the wilderness would op uh, represent him being resurrected to life. Now, that sounds reasonable, it sounds plausible. It sounds logical, right? It's just not right. It sounds good, but it doesn't fit the whole story. And we're going to look at that in a moment. One does represent Jesus Christ, slain for our sins. And there's even a hint of the Passover in this. But the other actually represents Satan, the devil. The Azazel, the one who is going to be taken out, and released into the wilderness, represents the devil who has led the whole world astray, and it represents his ultimate end when he pays for his sin. Going on, verse 11. Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself in his house, and kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. Then we see he takes the censer full of burning coals of fire, offers them... Uh, from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and brings it inside the veil. Then he says, verse 14, He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side, and before the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Verse 15, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, Bring its blood inside the veil, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Um, this is showing the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which was sprinkled on the mercy seat, which represents uh, Jesus Christ giving his life for all mankind. Verse 16, So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And because of their transgressions for all their sins, and so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. He talks about how there was no other person supposed to be in there when he was doing this, no other man. And he shall go out to the altar before the Lord and make atonement for it, take some of the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat, put it on the horns of the altar all around, then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Now, the sins of the people made them unclean. It made everything where they were unclean. And so if God was going to dwell with his people, 
it had to be cleansed. And, of course, seven is the number of completion. Uh, We understand that Jesus Christ's sacrifice was complete. It covers everyone's sins. It covers all mankind's sins once for all. There is a foreshadowing of, of, of that. In, as we read in Hebrews 9.12, I'll just read it. We read that Christ, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So all of this was pointing towards that. Going on in verse 20 in Leviticus 16, When he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Now, it's easy to see how some people would get this mixed up because they're both, uh, they both look like they might represent Christ. <clears throat> the problem is it, we have to put everything together. Let's go ahead and turn over to uh, Revelation chapter 13, and we begin to see uh, a couple of places that show who this really is. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 11. If we only use human reasoning, it might be plausible to assume, you know, if we just define it however we want to and in our own logic, it might be plausible to assume that both represent Christ. But Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, it says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, but spoke like a dragon. There is a being who masquerades as a false, as the false Christ, doesn't he? And he represents, or, or, or his representatives appear also looking like the lamb. But what do they say? How do they speak? They speak like the dragon. Verse 12, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed, and he performs great signs, so that even he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. So we know this is the false prophet who will be destroyed by Jesus Christ when he comes, but he masquerades as a representative, thinking, showing that he is a representative of Christ. He looks like a lamb. But he doesn't talk like one, does he? He talks like the dragon. Let's go over to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1. Revelation chapter 20 and verse verse 1. After the seven seals, after the seven trumpets, the seven last plagues that we heard about on the Feast of Trumpets, after all these things happen, when the false prophet is destroyed, look at what else has to occur. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, 
who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So we understand that there's going to be a time when Satan the devil is captured and he's bound and he's shut up. You know, the mouth of Satan the devil has to be shut, doesn't it? This false prophet speaking like a dragon, spewing out filth, really, when we understand what it's talking about. It's an exact parallel of Leviticus 16. So we can understand that these two goats represent two very different things and are types of two very different beings. In Revelation 20, the chapter goes on explaining, then after he is bound, look what happens. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until... The thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. All the things that we're going to be talking about at the feast in a few days. This is what happens right after Satan is bound. Right after the devil is is put away. The saints begin to rule with Jesus Christ on thrones. Now think about it. Isn't it the ultimate trick of Satan the devil when part of this day is to expose who he is and to reveal which of the two goats represents him? One represents Jesus Christ slain for our sins. The other represents Satan the devil. But the ultimate trick is he's gotten most people to believe he's not even on the stage. He's not either one of them. So why would they think that he's responsible for what we see in the world today? The truth is he is going to be exposed. The truth is he deceives the whole world. Notice in Revelation chapter 12 in verse Nine. He does not want to be exposed. He does not want to be revealed. And that's what this day symbolizes. And that's why this day is so important, as we know. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. You know, part of that deception is just simply taking him out of the picture of the Day of Atonement in the minds of a lot of people. So, brethren, as we read this, as we read Leviticus 16 and understand what it truly means, how thankful are we that God has opened our mind to understand who our Savior is, but also understand who our adversary is. It's a tremendous blessing because most people simply don't don't see that.
I think this shows just how how much we should appreciate spiritual discernment. One of the great themes of the Day of Atonement, I think, there are many lessons from this day, but I submit to you one of them that we'll focus on here is spiritual discernment is a gift from God. Spiritual discernment is a gift from God. How far can our own reasoning take us? How far can our own logic take us? How far can our own intelligence take us? You know, I think that's a big lesson of this day. Especially with a deceitful being on the loose as Satan the devil. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we find a very important principle. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. As you and I gather here, recipients of the truth, having our minds open, understanding what God's Word says and what his, our responsibility is, brethren, how much do we appreciate that? 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with pervasive, persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul was saying, I did not come to you and convince you of the truth through logic, through reasoning. That's not what made you understand it. He said there was another element that has to come. Verse 6, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. The Spirit of God is the all-important component, isn't it? That's what gives understanding. Verse 11, For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. They are spiritually discerned. Brethren, do we remember, do you remember how many times Mr. Armstrong emphasized this scripture? 
To understand spiritual truth, we have to have spiritual discernment. The natural mind can understand natural things, but it takes a spiritual mind to understand spiritual things. How much do we appreciate that? You know, there are an awful lot of really smart people today out in the world who are not here, who are not keeping the holy days, because they are doing what's logical to them. And it's not that they don't have good reasoning or that they're not sharp. They have a good mind. They're doing what makes sense to them. They just don't have one component. In fact, what we're doing might seem a little strange. How many of your neighbors think you have good, balanced spiritual judgment for keeping the Sabbath? For keeping that old legalistic Old Testament, Old Covenant ritual law, right? Do they think you have good judgment? Well, let's take it one step further. What about the Day of Atonement? That's a day when we go to even more extremes. We actually don't eat food or drink water. Do they think that's balanced? That sounds kind of extreme. But you know, once you understand the truth, that's absolutely the most balanced thing you could do to keep the Sabbath, to keep the Holy Days, to keep the Day of Atonement and understand what it pictures. It all makes sense. You know, we go through the book of Acts. How many times does uh, the book of Acts talk about keeping the Holy Days? Remember on the day of Pentecost... Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. The New Testament church kept the holy days, kept the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 12 and verse 2, it says, During the days of unleavened bread, um, Herod had killed James and then took Peter and then was intending to bring Peter out after Passover. Seven times in the book of Acts, the holy days are, are mentioned. And yet most people do not recognize that they're to be kept. What's the difference, brethren? Is it because we're so smart? Is it because, the, you know, all of us just have superior mental acuity? Or is it that out of God's mercy He called us and He turned on the light in our mind and in our head for no great effort on our part, but simply because He gave us spiritual discernment. You know, back a few weeks ago, I was um, got a note from a, a lady that had read one of my articles and and uh, about Pentecost. And the, in the article, uh, I was saying that we should keep the day of Pentecost. The New Testament church should keep the day of Pentecost. And if you're not, I was saying, why aren't you? And she called up and she said, I, I liked the whole article except for that point, that last part. That really kind of stuck in my craw. And she wanted to talk about it. So we talked a while about it, and I tried to explain to her about the holy days. And, you know, it's amazing how she had so many parts of the puzzle, but couldn't quite make the last leap to accept 
about escaping Pentecost. She even, as we talked, she explained that, well, I, I understand Zechariah 14. It says that in the future, all the world will be keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. All nations will come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. I accept that. I accept that. Well, great. But she says, it doesn't say Pentecost there. I thought, you, know, you, you, you have all the pieces. You're just not putting them together. And then we went through the book of Acts and we talked about how, how Paul met with the, the Jews on one Sabbath and then it says the Gentiles wanted to, him to teach them and he, they didn't say come tomorrow, Sunday. They said we want to come next week again on the Sabbath. And so she said, well, no, those were not real Gentiles. They were Jewish proselytes. They were Gentiles who had became, become Jews, and that's why Paul was teaching them. I, you know, we, we finally had to disagree to disagree. She had all the pieces of the puzzle, but they didn't quite fit. And brethren, have you noticed that? Have you ever been able to convince anybody of the Sabbath? if God didn't open their mind? Have you ever been able to go through the book of Acts and convince someone of the holy days if God didn't open their mind? This day is so profound because it has to do with spiritual discernment. And it is a gift from God, just as miraculous as that lot being cast, which was how one of the goats was chosen. You know, Aaron, it doesn't say that Aaron could have figured out which goat was which on his own. Through his own scrutiny, by eyeballing him, by touch, by feel, you know, he would still be there today if he was trying to figure out which was which. It said it had to be spiritually given to understand. Brethren, as we are coming before God on the Day of Atonement, on another holy day, one of the profound lessons here is that the only thing, the only reason why we know the things that we know is that God has simply given us a gift of spiritual discernment. You know, there's a quote, I think it's really interesting, from... Uh, an author uh, on ancient world history, and uh, it talks about Socrates and what what Socrates' goal was. <clears throat> and, and here, I'll just read a little bit of it. He says, Herein lies the supreme achievement of Socrates, namely, his unshakable conviction that the human, human mind is able to recognize and determine what are virtue and right. Truth, beauty, and honesty, and all the other great ideas which mean so much to human life. He taught that by keen questioning and discussion, it is possible to reject error and discern these realities. Brethren, it, it, you know, if we put point out to the future, as long as we have enough time to discuss, is the world going to come to truth? That's part of what this day is teaching us. The answer is no. The world is going to destroy itself. Furthermore, he firmly believed that the citizen 
who had once recognized these virtues would shape every action and all his life by them. That it's a natural thing. Most people are reasonable, logical. They will come to truth himself, and then they will want to follow. Socrates thus revealed the power of virtue and of similar ideas by argument and logic, but he made no appeal to religion as an influence toward good conduct. Brethren, isn't that the story of human life? Actually, he wasn't the first one that came up with that idea, was he? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Remember the, the, the passage, the story about Eve and the snake, Satan the devil, and what he told her and the choice that she made. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. God is lying to you. You can decide for yourself what's good for you. You can discern it. After all, look how good it looks. By your eyes, you can figure it out for yourself. Look how good it smells. Look at the texture. And sure enough, he says, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. How many times did Mr. Armstrong explain that to us as well? What was the issue here? Who decides what is good and right and what is wrong and evil? Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, relying on her own judgment, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. They, they sensed that something was wrong. They felt guilty. They knew they had made a choice that they were trying to discern right from wrong without God's help. And isn't that the choice that all humanity has been taking ever since? Now, why did, why did Satan the devil try to influence Eve that way? Well, because he thinks that way. <clears throat> this is the way his mind is. Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. He said, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations? You who have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. 
we might say today, I'm as good as you. You don't know any better than me, God. That's what he was saying. He thought he was as good. He said, verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. He said, I want to figure out what's good for me. I don't need your help. And haven't all mankind been doing that ever since? Verse 15, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider, saying, is this the man who made the earth to tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? And hasn't he held the world captive for 6,000 years? And very soon that captivity is going to end. And this day is the day that pictures it ending, when Satan the devil finally ha is responsible and held responsible for what he has done. Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 12. Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse, verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. A very beautiful being starting out. A wise being starting out. One that had good discernment starting out. The sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. He decided. He came to the point or he made a conscious choice that spiritual discernment could come from himself and didn't have to come from God. What did it lead to? Verse 16, By the abundance of your trading you became filled with violence within. And of course, this, is, this type of thinking has led to uh, violence and hatred and greed and, and all the things we see in the world. You sinned, therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they may gaze at you. Satan, the devil's end, will be ignominious. It will be shameful. He will finally be revealed and exposed for who he is and what he is and what he's done. But isn't it interesting? It says, I laid you before kings. Who are those kings going to be? Who are the kings that will see him? Who's going to be there on that day after the false prophets destroyed, after the beast is destroyed after Satan the devil is taken captive. Who will be there? Who are the kings that are going to reign on thrones with Jesus Christ right after this happens? Well, you and I. You and I. 
If we continue, if we qualify, if we fulfill our destiny, we are going to see His downfall. And actually, we are going to take control of government right after that point, aren't we? Remember, the kingdom of God is announced at the seventh trumpet, and then the seven last plagues take place, and all these things happen, and and Satan the devil is captured. And finally, the changeover of government takes place. Finally, he's taken off the throne, and the saints and Jesus Christ begin to reign. Brethren, we who are baptized have, have rejected the message of Satan the devil, haven't we? Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. We grasp that God had to open our minds, and we followed the lead that He gave as He was bringing us to conversion. We accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. We accepted that truth comes from God and is spiritually discerned. We can readily see that. But let's take one step further as we think about this day. We know it took a miracle from God to be called. But are we continuing to ask for spiritual discernment? We know when the light bulb went on in our mind, back whenever it was, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 5 years, 1 year, we know it had to be God's intervention. But brethren, are we continuing to ask for discernment along the way? Are we continuing to ask for a miracle for God to open our minds as we continue to walk forward? Remember the story of Lucifer. He started out perfect in the day he was created. Could we start well and not finish the race? Could we start with a miraculous beginning when God turns the light bulb on in our head, pulls up the shade, and the light flows in? And yet somehow as we go along, grow lax, grow weary, stop asking for His discernment and start using our own reasoning more. You know, I think it's a warning for us on this day, not just to be thankful for the discernment that led us here. But think about, are we continuing to ask for God's discernment to take us forward? Remember the story of Solomon? Let's turn over to 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 5. 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 5. Could we ever turn away from the truth? Could we ever walk away from the source that opened our minds and gave us a taste of the future, gave us a taste of the, the, the world to come, the power to come? Could we ever turn away? Well, you know, Solomon was given a fantastic amount of discernment. More discernment than apparently any living man had up to that point. Remember the story? He was a young man who was given heavy responsibility to be king over this nation. He was going to have to make important decisions that affected thousands of people. You know, as a king, you do that. Every decision 
is crucial. And so when God asked him as a young man what he wanted, what did he say? 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 5. Remember at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Now stop for a moment. Think about where we are in our plan, in God's plan for our destiny. Is not this where we are right now? He's saying that we are having an opportunity to prepare to be kings and priests over cities in the future, over thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps. Brethren, do you know how to do that yet? Do I know how to do that yet? Are we ready to rule? Or do we feel a little bit like Solomon did, saying, I need help? Therefore, verse 9, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? Solomon said, I want to make good decisions. I don't want to rely on my own human reasoning because I know that it leads to death. That's what he wrote in Proverbs. He said, I want your spiritual discernment. The same discernment that separates the goats, the one representing Jesus Christ and the one representing the Satan, the devil. I want that discernment to guide my life and every decision that I make. I don't want to mislead people. I don't want to hurt people with bad decisions. I want to understand how to apply your laws and your principles. You know, he wasn't given a, a, a Talmud, right, of, of, of how to, uh, what to do in every possible tiny little situation. No, he had to apply principles. And isn't the same thing true for us? God is giving us laws and commands and principles, and we have to apply them, and we need discernment. Remember verse 10, And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this thing. Then God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has been not been anyone like you before, nor shall any like you arise after you. And we know what happened. Solomon had incredible wisdom to make incredible decisions, and we still learn from his wisdom today. But brethren, remember the end of the story? What happened to Solomon? After giving a miraculous amount of discernment, and judgment, and ability to choose right from wrong. Somewhere along the way, 
he let it slip. Somewhere along the way, he fell into idolatry. Now, did that happen all at once? No, it never does. But somewhere along the way, it was one decision, one step here or there where he wasn't asking for God's discernment. What about you and me? As we are here on this Day of Atonement, are we asking for God to show us and lead us and guide us every day to be able to make the decisions we need to as long as we live and preparing for our future? As we are preparing and and, and striving to replace Satan the devil, the decisions that we make in the future, we're going to talk about this at the Feast of Tabernacles, are going to affect thousands and possibly millions of people. Do we need good discernment? I think we do. I think that's the Day of Atonement shows us and talks about and, and is instructive about that, how much it comes from God and not from us. As we are looking to the future, ask yourself, which, how important is it that we use God's discernment in our decisions? Well, which decisions do we want to fail? What, perci- what percentage of our decisions do we want to flop? Do we want to bomb? You know, I don't think none of them feel good when they bomb, right? And yet the only decisions that, uh, that really are going to de- succeed are the ones that are guided with God's discernment. There's another story over in Joshua chapter 9 and verse, verse 3. So as we are keeping the Day of Atonement, it's not just about what's happening on this day. It's not just what happened in Leviticus 16. There are powerful reminders and warnings for us going on in the future about are we learning the lesson that we cannot discern Satan the devil on our own ability, on our own steam. We can't. It has to come from God. Joshua chapter 9 and verse 3. Remember the story of the Israelites? They had conquered Jericho and Then they had come against Ai, and after the sin of Achan, and after they worked out that situation, they conquered Ai as well. And uh, Joshua and the children of Israel were riding high. They were a steamroller. And you know, Joshua really is an interesting person because there doesn't appear to be any major character flaws in his example. He's a great example. He's a giant of a man, spiritually, when you look at his, his life. And yet something happened. Even someone like Joshua could make a mistake. Notice in Joshua chapter 9 and verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had had done to Jericho and I, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors, and they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. Remember the story? They pulled out all the stops. They, th- th- this was an Academy Award winning performance, right? 
I mean, they had all the props, they had all the right, uh, you know, costumes, everything. And they pulled it off, verse 7. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? So they said to him, From a very far country, they started to spin this yarn, you know, A very far country your servants have come because the name of the Lord your God. We have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who is at Ashtaroth. Therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for a journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants now, therefore make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot. Look! Look at this! We, When we took it out, it was hot. Well, you can... By your own eyes, you can tell it's cold, right? So, I mean, that proves everything. That's, that, this is what they, were, they pulled off. We, we took this hot from our provisions, from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now, look, it's dry and moldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new, and see, they are torn. And these are garments, and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. And you know, when Joshua and the Israelites looked at all the facts that were laid out before them, the moldy bread, the sandals, the wineskins, the old clothes, all the facts, it all measured up. It all equaled up. It all made sense, right? It backed up their story, right? Or (laughs) the problem was they didn't ask God. Verse 14, Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. One simple mistake. They forgot to ask God. Brethren, if even Joshua, once in a while, forgot to ask for God's discernment, what about us? How much on a daily basis are we asking for God to show us as surely as He showed the children of Israel what was good and what was bad? How much on a daily basis are we asking God for that? Or sometimes do we get lazy, casual about it, and we forget? And it can have consequences. This did. And you and I are preparing to lead the world. We are preparing to make decisions that affect thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. Are we asking for God's discernment every single day? Verse 15, So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them, and it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them. Boy, they were surprised that they heard that they were their neighbors who had dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Their cities were Gibeon, uh, Chephiroth, Beeroth, and kirjath Jerem. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers had sworn to them. The point is, this happens so easily. We make judgments, we form opinions, we decide a matter without really seeking God if we're not careful. 
I think that's one of the profound lessons from this day. That it doesn't just happen at conversion. It doesn't just happen when we're baptized. But we've got to seek this process every day of our life. Continue and never let it slip. This day is a day that represents how we can't afford to make the type of mistakes that Joshua made. Now, we, we do make mistakes. We, we're learning. We're practicing. Maybe that's why God has just given us time to practice, right? Uh, this lifetime is, is practice. We're practicing for what we're going to do in the future. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm glad I can practice on a small scale before I ruin a lot of people's lives, you know? Um, I, I don't want that yet. And I think we, we all need that we're, we understand we're learning and practicing. But how do we grow in good judgment? Well, we follow directions. We read this book. We ask uh, for God to help us to fill our minds with its instructions. Remember back in Leviticus chapter 16. Remember the whole discussion about all the observances that were to take place on that day. Remember the context of when um, that was given to Moses. It was after a very bad decision by two sons of Aaron. Nadab and Abihu had taken strange fire, had entered where they were not to enter, and they had uh, profaned uh, the, uh, the Holy of Holies there, and they had died. And that's the context of, of uh, him telling him all these instructions. Notice in Leviticus chapter 10, we find... Um, we find what happened. Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 1. So we've got to read the book. We've got to know the instructions. Have any of you ever bought something and uh, that comes with a manual and you put it together before you open the manual? I have to admit I have. And, you know, you wind up taking it apart three times before you figure it out. And then you pull the manual out, and then you understand how it goes together. You know, we, we can't be that way about God's way, can we? We've got to read the book. We've got to know what the instructions are. This, this was a deadly accident when they didn't follow. Uh, their mistake uh, was, was, was their accident when they didn't follow the instructions that had been given. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. God used this incident as an opportunity to, to teach a lesson, to show that when, when it comes to following God's discernment, we've got to follow instructions, too, very carefully. How do we grow in judgment? How do we grow in making balanced decisions? Well, by reading this book, right? 
by reading what his instructions are. And in preparing our, is our role as kings and priests, we, we need to read the manual. The stakes are high. <clears throat> we also have to understand what our responsibility, responsibility is and what it isn't. Isn't it interesting that on the Day of Atonement, the congregation could not cleanse itself? Even though the, the whole congregation had to be atoned uh, to God and, and had to be cleansed through this process, they could not perform that individually. They needed Aaron to do it. Aaron was the only one authorized to go into the Holy of Holies. Not just anybody could do it. And he could only do it at that special time. Now, isn't that true that, that God works through other people to be examples of discernment and judgment. So as we are learning to separate the good from the bad, we look at our, our leaders. We look at, going back, Mr. Armstrong, who labored for 50 years as a servant of God, not just teaching the commandments of God, but teaching a whole way of life, right? Not just teaching the commandments, but teaching how to uh, apply them and how to make good de decisions and judgments. It's interesting how, uh, you know, the Bible is full of principles and, and, and broad uh, laws and commandments, but isn't it a blessing that we have a man who is God's servant for so many decades that we can understand how to apply some of those laws in the modern times. Because the Bible doesn't always say that, uh, how specifically to do it. We can look back to Mr. Armstrong's example, and that's invaluable experience. Mr. Meredith from time to time talks about that, how uh, thinking back to how Mr. Armstrong thought and how he would apply uh, the principles that we, that we find. And Mr. Meredith continues that process as well today. And not just teaching us all the commandments and laws, but, but teaching us how to apply them, right? Teaching us how to think and how, how to, to make it work. So it's not just head knowledge, but we're ready to make good decisions in the future. You know, Nehemiah talks about how on the holy day they, they taught the law and they gave the sense thereof. They tried to make it a, a, a way of life to explain how this breaks down every day. We can look at others' examples as well. You know, how, how do others uh, approach all the different issues that we, we wrestle with? You know, Child-rearing issues, marriage uh, issues, what, what TV we watch, what, what movies we watch, uh, what Internet we watch how to apply moderation, how to come out of the world and yet not alienate our neighbors, right? Does the Bible give every last detail of, uh, to, of everything that we have to do every single day? No, we have to apply principles, right? We can learn from others' examples. And it's helpful to look around and learn from the judgment of others and the fruits because we're all in the same boat learning to exercise judgment. Let's turn over to uh, John chapter 5 and verse 19. But ultimately, mostly, we need to look to our, 
our leadership, not just for the commandments, but to, to teach us how to apply those commandments and teach us how to, to make them living. Ultimately, certainly, we look to uh, Jesus Christ himself. John chapter 5 and verse 19. John chapter 5 and verse 19. The one who is the high priest, who Aaron represented, who, who was a type of, who now intercedes on our behalf. Look what he said. John chapter 5, verse 19, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Brethren, isn't that an amazing statement? That Jesus Christ himself said, I do not rely on my own judgment, but I follow what I see the Father do. Going down, verse 30. He said, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Isn't that remarkable? That even Jesus Christ himself looks to the Father for a pattern of how to do things, of how to make decisions, how to make judgments. You know, today in the world we're living in, it's not fashionable to be an imitator. Everybody wants to be unique, right? Like everybody else. Think about that for a moment. Everybody wants to do their own thing. It's not cool in, in, in the times we're living in to pattern yourself and, and to imitate someone else. But isn't the point of Christianity all about imitating Christ? Notice in John chapter 15 and verse, verse 5. Because, in other words, we do not have the ability to discern for ourselves. And if Christ himself said that about his imitating the Father, brethren, who are we? And where are we? To come up with all the answers ourselves. I think this is what the Day of Atonement teaches us. That where does spiritual discernment really come from? And we must never get confused that it comes from us. It has to come from God. John chapter 15 and verse 5. I am the vine, he said. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Nothing. Do we really believe that? That's what he said. It's interesting on a day like today when we're fasting and the juices start to churn in the stomach, you know, and the hunger starts, the pains start coming and we get a little dizzy and a little achy and we start to get a little weak. We understand that without physical food, we can do nothing after a few hours. But brethren, are we getting the real spiritual lesson that without spiritual discernment, we can do nothing? And we need to ask for spiritual discernment on a regular basis, just like food. Have you ever noticed that everyone pretty well thinks that their way is, is balanced? You know, true balance on any issue. We've all got it. Every single one of us, right? 
we, we feel like we're the most balanced person in the room. And why not? I mean, the decisions we make are logical to us, right? Maybe, maybe the Day of Atonement could also be the day called the day of I might be wrong. If nothing else from this sermon, please write down those four words. I might be wrong. In other words, with all of my great experience and with all of my balance and with all of my understanding and with all of my opinions and of all of my ability to understand God's word to the extent I can, do I have the humility to accept there might be one tiny percentage, maybe one percent, possibility that on any issue I might be wrong? My brother, we're not talking about doctrine. We're talking about applying doctrine. We're not talking about the commandments. We're talking about how we apply the commandments in our daily life and make decisions. Do we have a healthy sense of self-doubt on this Day of Atonement? I'm not saying doubting God or doubting His promises or doubting His Word. I'm saying being able to doubt our human judgment. Remember, <clears throat> those of you who like, who uh, may watch TV from time to time, I admit it, I'm from the TV generation. Remember Happy Days? Remember the Fonz? Remember there were times when he was forced to admit he was wrong and it was so hard. And he, he would say, I was you know. I was He couldn't do it. He couldn't get it out. Well, I'm not asking you to admit you're wrong. But brethren, on this Day of Atonement, I'm asking you to admit the possibility that you might not be right. You know, that possibility, that little bit of humility goes a long way. Remember Lot, and I know we're wrapping up here. Don't worry, I have my watch on. We're close, I think. Yes, we're one minute over. I better let you go. <clears throat> Brethren, I want to leave you with one thought. Let's turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7. I think there's a strong warning on this day. I think there's something for us to think about because this day typifies the turning point, the pivot point when the kingdom of God actually takes control of government on this earth. When Satan is taken out of the way and we, under Jesus Christ, take his place. So how important is it that we're ready? Well, part of understanding this day is what prepares us to be ready. That we understand where our spiritual discernment comes from. And we are living in an evil world. Second Peter chapter 2, 7. Remember the story of Lot? How he... When the angels came to him to deliver him, he tried to save them. But he was willing to sacrifice his daughters. 
to the wicked men of that city, and yet he was called a righteous man. Did living in Sodom affect Lot's judgment? 2 Peter 2.7, and he said, He delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Brethren, he was called righteous, and it says his soul was tormented every single day by living in Sodom. Are we not living in Sodom today? And do we not need to have a level of humility about our own opinions? Because we are a reflection of our environment. As we come out of the world, brethren, we need to seek God's spiritual discernment every single day. Because it's not that far off, and we're going to need it to apply to decisions all over this earth. You know what? I'm going to give one more scripture. I can't help it. I'm sorry. Let's turn over to uh, James chapter 4 and verse 1 to conclude. And I'm not kidding this time. James chapter 4 and verse 1. James chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, um, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure that warn your members? Are we just going to continue the same way of life that's been going on for 6,000 years? You know, if we don't reject Satan, if we don't reject his way, it's only going to continue the way it always has been. There has to be a change. There has to be a difference. We have to resist and reject his way and accept a new way. Verse 2, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, or do you think that the Scripture says in vain the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. He therefore says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is a day, the day of atonement, when we humble ourselves. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. As we keep this day, and as we look to the Feast of Tabernacles in a few days, let's think about and remember that we need to resist the influence of Satan. We need to draw near to God and become at one with Him. And let's remember that real spiritual discernment, which we need desperately so we can help the whole world in incredible ways, it only comes from God.